Today on Peace Talks Radio, we talk with two Harvard scholars. First, Steven Pinker, who says, despite what we may think, we're living in one of the most peaceful eras of human history. And he has the historical data to back it up. If you look at all the risk factors for war, both major war between great powers and smaller wars, the indicators are all positive. That is, to the best that you can predict, and admittedly that's a a dicey proposition, the prediction would be that the risk of war will continue to go down. Then Donna Hicks talks about how honoring another's dignity is key to resolving conflicts. Here's the thing about dignity. Even though we're all born uh, inherently valuable and worthy, the fact is we have to learn how to act like it. What does come naturally is our inherent worth, but what doesn't come naturally is our understanding of how to treat people as if they're worthy. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, our schools, our workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, two Harvard scholars who've written books that caught our attention. Later on, we'll hear from Donna Hicks on her book, Dignity, the essential role it plays in resolving conflict. But first, Steven Pinker, who in 2011 released his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. The morning I was to talk to Dr. Pinker in 2012, I woke up to this reporting on NPR about the ongoing conflict in Syria. Day after day in Syria, people are being killed. But sometimes it takes a weekend like this past one to remind us just how horrifying the conflict is. Government troops were battling rebels for control of Aleppo, Syria's largest city. And as they fought, flames spread through a centuries-old market, burning huge sections to the ground. When I got Steven Pinker on the line from his home in Boston, I played that clip to him and asked him if hearing reports like that and of other violent acts that seemed to fill our newscasts in a way inspired him to do all his research to put what we might think about the level of violence in our time in perspective. He said, not really. Uh, No, because I hate to work through a a basic math lesson, but a rate of violence consists of the amount of violence that occurs and the amount of violence that could occur, namely all of the countries and people of the world who aren't violent. And you never have a reporter saying, well, here I am in Nicaragua or Angola, uh, and um, what do you know, for the 27th year in a row, there is no war here. So, of course, the reporters are sent to exactly those corners in the world that still have violence. If you think that the rate of violence in the world can be judged by, uh, by the news reports, you're going to get a, a skewed perception of the worldwide rate. Only if you tally up the rate of violence uh, across the world, uh, uh, divide by the number of countries, divide by the number of people, can you get a proper assessment. Uh, Of course, no one believes that the rate of violence is zero, and as long as it isn't zero, there'll always be enough uh, reports of violence to fill the evening news. But it's just a mathematical error to say, well, I heard of some violence this morning, therefore the world is getting more violent, or even that the rate of violence is the same. Mm -hmm. Well, to borrow a term from journalism so as not to bury the lead, let me say that your book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, spells out that violence has been on the wane for a long time, thousands of years. 
and says that we may be living in the most peaceful time ever. Coming to this idea is in part a history detective story for you, isn't it? Uh, it is, because I was uh, repeatedly astounded at how many different statistics measuring rates of violence over time have shown a downward trend. And the detective story is to figure out what drove down the rates of violence in each case and whether there's some common denominator. Uh, why, why should the rate of homicide, the rate of war, the rate of rape, the rate of child abuse uh, all be going downward? Well, you ask the question how bad the world was in the past, and then you take us back in time and remind us of a much more brutal past in human history. You suggest six major declines in violence over hundreds of years. So let's sketch those out briefly. And I guess we need to start with what was it like before the first major decline? Yes, the uh, the first decline I call the pacification process, uh, which deliberately has a, a mixture of uh, an optimistic and uh, sinister overtone. Uh, it refers to the fact that when uh, a state imposes control over a territory, it will often try to stamp out the uh, endemic uh, tribal raiding and feuding that pretty much characterizes uh, life in a state of anarchy. So even though the first empires were often quite nasty and uh, brutal, uh, they uh, did have the effect of preventing people from killing each other, uh, really so that the kings and emperors could keep the people alive to supply them with soldiers and taxes and, and slaves. It's not that they had particularly benevolent motives, but uh, they did have the effect of driving violence down. Just as a farmer has uh, an incentive to prevent his cattle from killing each other, not because he particularly cares about the cattle, but it's in his own interest. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't do him any good. And uh, that's what happened with the, uh, some of the early uh, emperors and kings. So that, that was the so our transition from anarchy to the first states marks the first significant decline in violence. One question we should answer though is how do we know about violence rates that far back? You cover this in the book. Could you review that for listeners? Well, there are two sources of evidence. One of them is uh, forensic archaeology. You can think of this as uh, CSI Paleolithic. Uh, that is, you. Um, unearth skeletons from prehistoric times, examine them for signs of violent trauma, things like uh, stone arrowheads embedded in bones, uh, bashed-in skulls, parry fractures from your upper arm, the, the kind of fracture that you get while when warding off a blow, deliberate decapitations, and uh, they show a surprisingly high rate of, uh, of uh, violence, up to uh, an average of 15% of prehistoric skeletons have some signs, sign of uh, violence in them. Well, as the many uh, graphs that are in the book point out, there's a steady drop in violence from the late 1400s to the 1900s. And the second big decline that you write about comes from people increasingly controlling their impulses and cooperating with their neighbors. What was driving those trends? The, um, well, the reduction of one-on-one -on -one homicide, which is the second trend that I write about in the book, the fact that uh, homicide rates, when they're uh, continuously available for centuries, as they are in many parts of Europe, show a 35-fold decline. So a contemporary Western European has about one thirty-fifth the chance of being murdered as his medieval ancestors. 
one of the uh, psychological drivers of that change has been a, an increased premium that we put on self-control and uh, dignity and manners. That a whereas it used to be that a gentleman was someone who would lash out with violence when he was provoked or insulted, now uh, that would, that would be a ticket to anger management therapy. And <laughs> now uh, the sign of a uh, gentleman is that he can laugh off uh, uh, insults and provocations. Uh, and that change was driven probably by two forces. One of them was the consolidation of uh, government and a judicial system and, and police forces. Uh, the other was a change in the nature of economy from uh, farming and uh, land, which meant that uh, wealth came from land and the more land you had and the less land your rival knight had, the better off you were, to uh, uh, commerce and exchange and trade as the way to get rich. If you depend on trading and doing business with others to uh, prosper, then other people become more valuable to you alive than dead. And that changes the rules of the game and means that cooperating with others as opposed to constantly uh, getting involved in uh, uh, contests of honor is the way to flourish. Well, for violence to drop even more, uh, a third transition took place, you write, and, and you say it's sometimes called the humanitarian revolution. Where on the timeline is that, and then what was bringing violence down? Uh, this was a process that uh, took off in the second half of the 18th century, the time of the European Enlightenment, when uh, the violence perpetrated by governments and, and churches uh, was challenged and brought under control. Practices like gruesome, sadistic executions, like uh, uh, disemboweling and burning at the stake and breaking on the wheel, witch hunts, uh, the use of capital punishment for nonviolent crimes like, uh, like shoplifting or, or insulting the king, uh, the uh, elimination of debtors' prisons, uh, of blood sports, of uh, uh, absolute tyranny replaced by democracy— uh, and of most, most famously of all, slavery. All of these movements began or took off in the 18th century and proceeded throughout the 19th century. Well, and also, this shows up in the U.S. Constitution, you point out, prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Now, when a phrase like that has staying power, I mean, we're still using it these days, uh, it's rather a significant benchmark, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And um, we often forget that the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment took place during a wave of abolitions of judicial torture that spread over Europe and the West. The United States was pretty much in the middle of that tidal wave. Uh, we still invoke it today, although what we mean by cruel and unusual punishment has changed. Uh, it, it, now it refers to uh, anything from prison overcrowding to uh, disparate application of the death penalty to uh, the different races. But initially it, it referred to gruesome mutilation and torture. Uh, and uh, it, it's fortunate that we can still invoke its moral authority to make our practices more humane. But uh, those who point out that uh, it's being stretched beyond its original meaning do have a point. Harvard psychology professor Steven Pinker is our guest. We're talking about his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. And the next big transition that you tag in the book is what some call the long peace, the dearth of major interstate war since the end of World War II. As you say, some point to the threatening presence of nuclear weapons slowing down interstate aggression, but you say it's more than that. 
Uh, it is more than that, and, and I uh, don't agree with the suggestion that the nuclear bomb be uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, although that has been suggested. Uh, even if one believes that deterrence was a major factor that prevented the Soviet Union and the U.S. from going to war, Conventional deterrence was uh, terrifying enough uh, in the sense that no one wants a re- wanted a repeat of World War II, that the uh, aerial bombardment and tank battles and artillery shellings from conventional warfare were proven in World War II to be uh, mind-bogglingly destructive, and uh, the presence of nuclear weapons might be the difference between falling out of a five-story window and falling out of a 50-story window. But I don't think that's the only cause uh, of the long peace. It's also that um, networks of uh, trade have vastly expanded. The, the European Union was the, uh, the, the first, and it was explicitly designed so that countries uh, would have no temptation to invade each other for coal and steel because it was cheaper just to, to buy them, uh, and uh, gradually knit the entire world into a globalized community where attacking your neighbor would kind of be like attacking yourself because you depend on them so much for, for trade. But also there's been a... Um, uh, a change in sensibilities, uh, a change in ideology that I think is encapsulated by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, namely that every individual has, a, has rights. But in the course of history, it's actually a, a radical, shocking doctrine that what comes first is the individual man, woman, and child, and not the glory of the race or the nation or the religion or the class. And elevating the uh, human life to, uh, to the uh, at most good, was uh, was kind of a radical step. And I think it uh, we don't even acknowledge how much it's penetrated our thinking. But nowadays, leaders are apt to think twice before they send uh, their populations uh, into the, uh, the, the the war machine, like, uh, like the cannon fodder of World War I. Also, I think uh, international organizations deserve some of the credit. Uh, the United Nations is often a, a laughing stock. But on the other hand, it has done good in, in uh, two ways. One of them is that its peacekeeping forces, despite some conspicuous failures, really do keep the peace more often than not. And uh, the other is that by setting a new uh, set of norms, that uh, the, the members of the United Nations are immortal, no, no state uh, has disappeared through conquest since the founding of the UN, uh, unlike centuries before when uh, countries like Poland would be wiped off the map uh, repeatedly. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And also that territorial borders are pretty much sacrosanct. It's, um, there are virtually no uh, territories that have been absorbed by conquest since uh, 1950 or so. And again, this is a, a radically new pattern after centuries in which empires you know, expanded at the drop of a hat. Well, there may be kind of a soft line between what you call the long piece and then what you labeled as the fifth trend, the new piece. I, I think some of the things you're talking about kind of fall under your new piece category, don't they? The decline of communism and the discreditation of genocide, things like that. Uh, Indeed. So there was another change after uh, the fall of the Soviet empire around uh, 1989 to 1991. Um, Not only, most obviously, the end of the Cold War and the end of the threat of a uh, global thermonuclear war, but also a lot of the proxy wars in the developing world ran out of steam after their patrons had uh, stopped uh, uh, doing 
um, indirect combat with one another. So there was a decline in wars in Africa and South Asia and Latin America. Both the number of wars and the number of people killed in wars have been in bumpy decline since uh, 1990 or so, as has the number of of people uh, killed in genocides and in uh, terrorist attacks, believe it or not. But uh, the Cold War drove a lot of peripheral conflict uh, beyond the the reach of the superpowers themselves. And when they stopped fighting, uh, it uh, it took the wind out of the sails of a lot of these global uh, conflicts in the developing world. Well, to complete the the six declines, uh, the sixth, which chronologically I guess seems to overlap, maybe with the long piece and the new piece, is the rights revolution. Talk more about that. Um, by this, I, I refer to a number of staggered revolutions that uh, have unfolded over the last fifty years that target violence on smaller scales against vulnerable populations, like racial minorities, uh, as in lynching and hate crimes, uh, which were targeted by the civil rights revolution, rape and uh, domestic violence, which were targeted by the women's rights revolution, corporal punishment in schools. Uh, spanking and bullying, which were targeted by the children's rights revolution, gay bashing and laws that criminalize homosexuality, uh, targeted by the gay rights revolution, and still in progress, the cruel treatment of animals in uh, uh, factory farms and laboratories targeted by the animal rights revolution. Well, some might argue that during these last two historical trends, uh, in the U.S. anyway, uh, people would say they feel less safe maybe than when they were a kid in the 50s, even in neighborhoods, you know, more alarm systems, fewer doors left open on homes, fewer kids walking unaccompanied to school. Why the inconsistency there, do you think? Well, they they are responding to a real trend, namely that the in the United States, the rate of violent crime bottomed out in the 40s and 1950s. And, and they're right that that was a uh, uh, a kind of golden age of safety. And the violent crime rate uh, skyrocketed in the 60s, stayed high in the, se- high in the 70s and 80s, and uh, fell mostly back down to earth starting in the 1990s. We're not quite at the rate of the 1950s, but we're, uh, we're close. More on Peace Talks Radio with Steven Pinker, Harvard psychologist and author of many best-selling books, including 2011's The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. More after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. 
online with all the episodes in our series dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, two Harvard University scholars who've written books of interest to us. Later on, we'll talk with Donna Hicks about dignity and the critical role it plays in conflict resolution. Right now, though, we continue our conversation with Dr. Steven Pinker, author of the 2011 book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, which describes and documents how our current world is far less violent now than in past eras. Overall, you say that these trends are more because of historical circumstances than a consciousness uh, shift to uh, empowering our better angels, uh, history, culture, Even this conversation that listeners are eavesdropping on now, though, doesn't it all kind of link to mind or value development or new pathway constructions in our brains toward less violence over time? Uh, I think I don't think that we've changed biologically as a species. Certainly, we haven't in in just the last two thirds of a century, where uh, only a couple of generations have uh, have, have uh, replaced each other, and that's not enough time for there to be any uh, Darwinian evolution in the literal biologist sense. And I suspect that if we were to step into a time machine and go back a couple of hundred or, or even a thousand years there would not have been significant differences biologically between the, uh, us and the people we would have bumped into. Uh, so it, ha- it certainly has been a change in sensibilities, some of it quite conscious. The, the movement to abolish slavery and judicial torture were uh, moralistic movements, as have been many anti-war movements. Uh, some of them have been um, uh, byproducts of other developments that were implemented not as a conscious effort to uh, lower rates of violence, but that's what happened as a byproduct, uh, such as the growth of networks of, of commerce and trade. Uh, so it's some mixture of deliberate um, moral entrepreneurs who, who started crusades to reduce a, a particular kind of violence and, and often succeeded, and uh, indirect systemic developments. Sometimes, though, it's individuals. I mean, you cite 1962's Cuban Missile Crisis as a really compelling example of leaders leaning toward the better angels, I think, when the U.S. and Soviet Union came close to nuclear conflict over the missiles being built in Cuba by the Soviet Union. Uh, Indeed, and I think individuals make an enormous difference. More often, uh, on, the, on the bad side than on the good side, just because it's a lot easier to do damage than to, to do good. And uh, some of the worst cataclysms in history really can be pinned down to the uh, monstrous egos of a few men who seize the uh, power of the state. Uh, Mao, Hitler, Stalin, uh, Napoleon, uh, and, and you can think of some contemporary examples too. Uh, but it, it is also true that every once in a while, an individual can... Um, reduce violence by particular decisions, and, and certainly Kennedy and Khrushchev, who, who could, have, could be blamed for blundering into the crisis, have to be credited for finding a way out. Uh, I would add uh, Gorbachev, who did not call out the tanks to uh, plug the hole in the Berlin Wall and, and pretty much watched as the Soviet Union more or less peacefully uh, went out of existence, uh, together with the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet Empire. Uh, perhaps uh, Anwar Sadat, who uh, 
uh, literally gave his life to the cause of preventing another war between uh, Egypt and Israel, uh, a peace that has lasted for more than 30 years since, despite several regime changes. So yes, every once in a while, there are individuals that can make a difference. And the, the question is whether the changing times changes the probability that you'll get uh, you know, a, a Stalin or a Mao on the one hand versus a, uh, a Khrushchev and a Kennedy and a Gorbachev on the other. Mm-hmm. So the numbers are convincing on the whole that violence has dropped in our world relative to population, certainly. And as you know, some reviewers have taken exception to your use of relative statistics. One wrote that with a world population of 9 billion in 2050, Pinker would conceivably be satisfied with a mere 2 million people killed in a war that year. What was your overall response to the objection about the uh, relative statistics? Well, I think it's it's um, uh, enumerate. It's just mathematically illiterate. For one thing, I wouldn't be satisfied, but I would, be, I would think that that would be better than if there was a world in which uh, 4 million people were killed. Uh, we, when you calculate any kind of risk, it is always a fraction. If you decide whether which hospital to go to for cancer surgery, uh, you don't go to the one with a smaller number of deaths altogether, uh, say the smallest rural hospital you can find in Podunk, because they only get a handful of uh, patients every year, and so only a few patients die. You'd go to the big metropolitan one that has uh, the best treatment, that does have more deaths because it has more patients, but it has a higher success rate at treating the patients. Uh, this is just uh, just common sense, and uh, the idea that with a growing population, uh, the number of uh, absolute deaths is an indication of how uh, what the tendencies toward violence are, uh, I think is completely misguided. That having been said, uh, for many of these statistics, it doesn't matter. The absolute number of deaths has gone down as well, and that is certainly true for war and genocide uh, over the course of the uh, second half of the 20th century. Steve Pinker, in our conversation here, and, and of course in your book, you suggest recognizing the peacemaking power of commerce, and you use China and the U.S. in the present day as an example. Could you say more about that? Uh, yeah, a number of um, statistical studies have borne out the old Enlightenment theory of gentle commerce, the idea that as you provide more opportunities for exchange and trade, then uh, other people become more valuable alive than dead, and it becomes cheaper to buy things than to, to uh, uh, plunder them. Uh, it's a nice theory. It's behind the Commerce Clause and, and other mechanisms of the American Constitution that were designed to foster exchange. Uh, and it also is, seems to be borne out by the evidence. A number of studies have shown that the more trade the two countries engage in, the less likely they are to have a military dispute. And the, the current rivalry between the United States and China could be a case in point. A lot of uh, pundits have said, well, China is growing in GDP. There's a big rivalry. They're not particularly warm toward us, all of which are true. But it's extraordinarily unlikely that we'll fight a war with China. Uh, among other things, uh, we owe them too much money and they make all our stuff. Uh, on each side, it would be like uh, attacking yourself. And what role do you think modern technologies have had in the new piece, creating the global electronic village? Uh, I think there, um, on, in a number of points in history, the rise of technologies for communication and transportation have expanded people's sensibilities. Uh, it becomes harder to demonize someone 
Uh, if you rub shoulders with them, if you can imagine what it's like to be them, uh, if their lives and their suffering becomes more real to you. And I think the rise of uh, photography, television, and more recently the internet, like the rise of print and literacy a couple of hundred years before, has expanded people's sense of empathy and made it less likely that they would uh, kill and torture others with impunity. Uh, you see this just as an example in the fact that uh, World War, in World War I, the uh, British government banned the publication of battlefield photographs because they thought it would sap uh, morale and support for the war. During the Vietnam War, in contrast, uh, the cliche was it was the first war that was uh, broadcast into people's living rooms. And not coincidentally, it was the first war that had a, a massive and ultimately successful anti-war effort. You say in the last chapter of your book that you don't want to make predictions or give advice to politicians, but I guess you are, in a way, wanting them to notice something about what you're laying out here. Uh, absolutely. That um, studies uh, that, that try to identify what has driven rates of war down have identified some pretty good candidates, including UN peacekeeping forces and, and other uh, peacekeeping missions, and the, uh, the overall pacifying effects of, of trade and commerce, uh, and the spread of uh, humanitarian ideals, that is, valuing the individual over the uh, state or the ethnic group. Uh, so yes, I think that the uh, it, it's a, a a fact worth noting and uh, one worth savoring, and uh, one uh, from which we should try to draw lessons and apply them more broadly. Well, a key focus on our program is, to a degree, individual peacemaking, conflict resolution for folks in their daily lives. What might you hope that the reader would draw from all of this that might be useful to their own relationship with uh, the threat of violence or their attitudes toward violence or conflict resolution? Uh, one is that the um, uh, ideal of honor, of responding to insults, settling scores, uh, has been a major driver of violence, and that um, as has the uh, attitude that you should uh, let your feelings out, vent, um, let it all hang out, walk on the wild side, all of those things that we uh, say we enjoyed in the 1960s uh, actually weren't such good things. They, you can blame them for the rise in violence in the 1960s, that uh, self-control, dignity, restraint, uh, all of those things that we thought were so square and old-fashioned in the 1960s really do have a, uh, a beneficial effect. People probably shouldn't vent, uh, let their feelings out, do their own thing. Uh, it, it's, often better to, it's often better to forgive and forget. Your colleague Peter Singer at Princeton wrote a review of The Better Angels of Our Nature in the New York Times, and he called it a supremely important book, but he wondered about the future in his review. He calls you, quote, an optimist who knows there is no guarantee that the trends that you've documented will continue. Does that feel accurate to you? Uh, there, there is no guarantee. On the other hand, if you look at all the risk factors for war, both major war between great powers, which does the most damage, and smaller wars amongst uh, uh, weaker countries in the developing world, the indicators are all positive. That is, to the best that you can predict, and admittedly that's a, a dicey proposition, the prediction would be that the risk of war will continue to go down. You can hear more of our conversation with Steven Pinker and find links to his work and his 2011 book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, at our website, 
peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Next, we turn to another Harvard scholar who's standing by in the studios of WBUR in Boston. Donna Hicks, Ph.D., is an associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. She's author of the book Dignity, The Essential Role It Plays in Resolving Conflict. She's applied the concepts she's about to describe to helping resolve conflicts around the world. Dr. Hicks, welcome to Peace Talks Radio. Oh, you're welcome. Dr. Hicks, it's always important to define terms. I know you know this. Uh, So give us, in brief, if you can, as you do in your introduction to your book, the difference between dignity and respect. My understanding of dignity is actually quite simple. After, after researching this for, uh, for many, many years, I've come up with a, a simple definition, which is it's our inherent value and worth, as simple as that. And the other side of it, although, which is not so understand, well, maybe it's just not so obvious to people, is that we are also, in, as we are all born equal in value and worth, we are also born vulnerable. And so I think that's the complicating part about this. So if, if, if we want to understand dignity, we have to understand our inherent value and worth. But at the same time, we have to know that we're all vulnerable to having that dignity and that value and worth um, questioned. Now, your book is devoted largely to 20 chapters, a, a chapter spotlighting each of 10 essential elements of dignity and then a chapter for each of 10 temptations we all encounter to violate dignity. Some reading this may say it's simple conventional wisdom about treating people well, but some of it is a bit more complex. All is more challenging than it seems, I would say. You start with the notion of acceptance of identity as an essential. I guess you say, assume that others have integrity. Expand on that a little bit for us. I saw this most clearly, uh, Paul, when I was working uh, uh, in international conflict when we were trying to bring parties together uh, for dialogues. And the key, one of the key dignity issues that would come up is people wanting to have their identity uh, validated. They wanted people to, 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 to understand that who they are mattered. And oftentimes in conflict situations that I've, I've dealt with, you know, people often feel either inferior or superior, and the identity issue is, is really at the core of dignity. And if we're in a situation with people where we feel like people are either judging us as inferior or where we ourselves are, are feeling superior, then you know you've got an issue, uh, a problem with dignity, because our identity is basically uh, something that we can't alter, and it's a manifestation of our, of our sense of value and worth. Mm-hmm. And this this is the chapter that you advance this key notion to me of distinguishing between the me and the I in each of us, the me being the more primal, reactive us, and then the I being, how would you say, our, our better selves? Well, I think the I is the part of us that is able to, um, is able to step back and look at a situation we're in where our, our me is all riled up. In other words, let's say we're in a conflict with somebody and we're feeling really threatened and upset and our self-preservation instincts are kicking in and we want to defend ourselves and we want to, you know, lash back at the person who's threatening us or at least, at the very least, defend ourselves uh, against the person who's threatening us. And the I, the, there's another part of us. If we develop this enough um, in our lifetime, the I recognizes 
and, and has the voice that says, wait a minute, you know, hold on a second. If you are reactive in this situation, if you're, you're defensive, even without thinking about what's going on, if you can't push the, the pause button and say, wait a minute, you know, if, I'm, if I react to this situation, if my me is in charge of the situation here, I might make matters worse. I might actually even escalate the conflict. And so the I is the one that has the, the capacity to, to put the brakes on the me. Now, mind you, Paul, this is not this is not an easy thing to do. It takes some, you know, it's a, it's like a muscle that needs to be developed. No, it is hard work. I know. Uh, the next essential that you cite is inclusion, making people feel that they belong. Why why do we want to exclude in the first place? Is that evolutionary caution as well? Well, I think you know all of these have an evolutionary basis, but the inclusion, you know, we were all there's part of us as human beings that are wired to be connected to other people. Uh, it's it's part of what gives us empathy and allows us to feel the feelings of other people. And if we're feeling excluded, I mean, it's, it was also, inclusion was also, and connection, designed to keep us safe. It was designed to uh, enhance our, our survival. And if we're feeling on the outskirts of, of a group, let's just say, I mean, let's put it in everyday terms. Let's say we're at, at work and we're attending, we're there's a meeting going on and you walk past the room and you realize, why, am I, why wasn't I invited to this meeting? There's this crushing sense of being excluded. Self-doubt comes into, the, into play. Why wasn't I invited? You know, is there something wrong with me? Do they not like me? All these issues come up in our heads. And so inclusion, if you just you know, start with the, the assumption that people really need to be included and if you have to exclude someone, be careful to explain to the person why why they're not being um, in- included in the meeting or the whatever it is. More ahead on Peace Talks Radio with Donna Hicks, author of the book Dignity, the essential role it plays in resolving conflict, right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online with all of the episodes in our series and many more useful resources at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Donna Hicks, Ph.D., is our guest. She's an associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University, and she's the author of the book Dignity, the Essential Role It Plays in Resolving Conflict. She's applied the concept she's talking to us about today to help resolve conflicts all around the world. Dr. Hicks, we're outlining some of the essentials to honoring another's dignity that you outline in your book. And your next essential is, quote, making people feel safe from harm and humiliation. 
Now, how is it that we always seem to inadvertently violate this? What, what can we do? It, it happens uh, so much. I'm just going to use an example of the workplace because I've, I've spent a lot of time working in the corporate world where people feel uh, they don't feel safe to speak up when, let's say, when their boss violates their dignity. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's inadvertent. I think I think nine times out of ten people aren't even aware of the extent to which they're psychologically um, shaming people or making people feel less than. Uh, but it's, it's part of the learning that has to take place around all of these elements, making people safe, feeling free to speak up, feeling like they, what they, they're experiencing matters to, to the people around them. It, um, it, really, it really is the essence of, of uh, setting a, a good positive tone in a, in, a, in a workplace because I can tell you not, nine people out of ten whom I interview around, around this issue of safety don't feel safe in the work environment, especially around situations when they feel people in uh, positions of authority are, are violating them. And, uh, you know, I would also add it's, it's nine times out of ten unknowingly violating their direct reports. I would imagine some skeptics would say something like, uh, well, gee, you know, that means I have to think so hard before I say anything in the workplace that I'm going to be walking on eggshells if I have to worry about inclusion and keeping fe- people feeling safe and acknowledgement and all the other things that we're about to talk about. Uh, do you hear that from uh, people in workshops? I do, Paul. I do. And it's what's interesting to me is that we will, we humans will spend, you know, years of our lives getting advanced degrees, getting MBAs, getting all of these, you know, all of these um, degrees that help us in our daily lives, especially in, in getting jobs and so on. But when it comes to learning how to treat one another in a way where both both of us, you know, both parties in the in the interaction feel like they're they've been seen, they've been heard, they've been acknowledged and recognized. All of that takes work as well. But yet, I, I'm really not sure why people have such resistance to learning this stuff, to taking the time, putting in the effort, and uh, it, it just makes me laugh, really, because we spend so much time doing other things that enhance our well-being. But this this is such a critical piece of our social development, and yet. Uh, frankly, it's it's really n- nowhere uh, in the in the school systems now. Harvard's Donna Hicks is the author of Dignity: The Essential Role It Plays in Resolving Conflict. We're talking to her from Boston today. Another one of your essentials of dignity that you signal out in your book, your chapter on the importance of acknowledgement in offering dignity, focuses on good listening behavior. If we want to have a really good conversation with someone and we want to honor his or her dignity in the process, there is nothing more gratifying uh, than being on the receiving end of somebody who is really, you can tell, wants to know what you have to say. Who You can tell by their tone, you can tell by their, uh, by their demeanor, everything really is pointing to, I want to know what you have to say because it's important to me. And that kind of listening, that really does require us to put a hold on our own perspective. And again, I think it's challenging because when the conversation is exciting, we get carried away. But I think for uh, as far as learning really good dignity honoring skills, it is an essential, essential um, aspect of, of walking away with uh, fe- a good feeling that this conversation went well. We did a really good job and we listened to one another in this conversation. 
Well, you mentioned giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. One of your essentials is to give people the benefit of the doubt to to treat them as trustworthy. Now, I'm imagining this must be hard in international negotiation when there's maybe plenty of evidence of untrustworthiness uh, among uh, principles. Uh, Many debate whether to give dignity to tyrannical leaders, for example. Is is it still an essential even in those uh, venues? I think that the the dialogue uh, processes and the communication patterns of parties in conflict is really clear. There is no trust. There is no desire to give the benefit of the doubt. And furthermore, I I would take it a step further and say there is this you know question of I have to be really careful here the way I present myself because this person may hurt me. Right? It's it's a serious situation, obviously, uh, on, in international conflict. Uh, Acknowledging all of that, there is still a, a body of research that says that the way you open and present yourself in a conversation with someone, in whether it's a dialogue or just a casual conversation, you are going to set the tone for the way the other person um, responds. You know, there's all this research on mirror neurons now that's so popular these days that you know demonstrates that we have neurons in our brains that are finely tuned to the way other people um, react to us. So even in under situations, and I, and I tell people this all the time, even when you are feeling suspicious and you even you have good reason to feel suspicious, try this. Try, to see, try and see how, how um, disarming it is to people when you come into a conversation with a genuine feeling that I want to not rush to judgment with this person, that I want to give that person the benefit of the doubt, of the doubt that he or she is reacting the way or has reacted in the past uh, in ways that can be easily explainable and have good, a good, good reason for that. And it's, um, it's astounding how if, if you set the tone that way in the positive, um, in the positive uh, orientation toward the person, you can affect the way the conversation is going to go. Now, of course, there's all sorts of ways in, in these devastating, these big conflicts that you know, this probably wouldn't work. But in, in, a, in, a, in an intimate dialogue with, you know, three or four people who are trying to, to work out um, these difficult situations, I have seen this work countless numbers of times. Well, this really dovetails into your next essential, which is striving for real understanding. Uh, there's good listening, but this speaks more to the real desire to understand another's point of view. Yes, the understanding is, um, is, I mean, I don't know which of these is, is the most important. I don't, haven't really prioritized these elements of dignity. But we, we, again, we rush to judgment so often, especially in situations where we're feeling threatened, because that's part of our survival behavior. We want to, you know, we want to, to figure out what we should be doing in this situation so we don't get harmed. But if we take the, you know, the, the position that this person he he or she thinks the way he does because there's a good reason why there's a there's an underlying story there and if you can get to the underlying story um it's it is remarkable when that person is given a chance to explain herself it's remarkable how um how the defenses on 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 her part will will soften a little bit and the conversation softens and if you really you know, I have this expression that I use when I when I want to seek more understanding from someone. I say, "Just tell me more about that." That's so interesting because that's not the way I see it. I'm I'm really interested in how how you feel about that and why you feel that way. It's such an opener. 
Now, we may not get to all of the ways that we are tempted to violate dignity. Uh, In the second half of your book, you list 10. Most are temptations that wind up violating our own dignity, I would say, as much as someone else's. But I think one of the most critical chapters there, to me, is the temptation to resist feedback. When we do block feedback, you write that we compromise our own dignity while affronting another one who could actually offer us something helpful. And in this chapter, you talk about three stages of our relationship with our own dignity that I find useful. Could you talk about these stages of dependence, independence, and interdependence a bit? Uh, Well, stage. let me just say that it's stages of our understanding of our own dignity, how we perceive our our dignity. And in in the dependence stage, we feel like we are um, that, and, and this is true with children, that we feel that our dignity is in the hands of someone else, that we have to get the praise, we have to get the encouragement, we have to get the pat on the back to know that um, our dignity is, uh, that we are worthy, that we are, our dignity is intact. That's, that's the first stage, and, you know, hopefully that goes through childhood, and hopefully when, once we become young adults, we enter the, the next stage, which is the stage of independence, that we learn, if we have good enough, a good enough child-rearing, if we have good enough parenting early on, we have had enough mirroring of that goodness inside us that we can, once we reach adolescence and young adulthood, we can say, okay, I know, I know my dignity is intact. I know it from the inside out. I'm a good person. I've got value. I've got worth. All right. And there is a certain, um, there's a certain um, element of uh, cockiness around that one too, that I don't care what other people think. It doesn't bother me if somebody, uh, you know, says something mean to me. But the fact is, of course, we all know that it does. So there's that cockiness in the independent stage that once you reach the final stage, which is a state, what I call of interdependence, that it does matter the way other people uh, treat us. And we do recognize that when someone is uh, hurtful to us, that we take a hit. There's no question about that. At the same time, we also recognize, and this is really the more important part, we also recognize that we need other people's feedback in order to to see and to and to grow and be, and to become uh, a more fully developed person, we need to have people illuminate our blind spots for us because there is that vulnerability that we have. It's like our Achilles heel; we can't see what other people can see. So, in order to become better at honoring dignity, in order to become better at honoring our own dignity, we ought we we recognize at this stage of interdependence that we need other people in this process. Right, and being open to the feedback is the more um, developed stage. It is, it is. And, and, and you know, I just want to say one thing about this feedback because when, when we get our, our dignity violated, and so many of, I mean, I have yet to meet a human being who hasn't had an experience of having his or her dignity violated uh, throughout one's life. If it, it is a, it's a real hit. It's, it's a wound that is felt in the brain in the same area as a physical wound. I came across across that research when I was writing my book, and I found it just astounding that the brain doesn't really know the difference between a psychological wound uh, to our dignity, um, in my terms, and and a physical a physical wound. And if you think about it, there's no there's no nine one one call when we've been shamed or humiliated or we feel dismissed or unrecognized or unheard. There's nowhere to go with it, and so there's a reason why this feedback. You know, we're, we're so, we have so many unhealed um, dignity violations that have stockpiled in us. And 
you try to add some negative you know feedback that somebody's trying to give you onto that and if you if you don't have an awareness that that um that you're going to have this sort of knee-jerk reaction to, no, I don't want to hear it. If you don't realize it's because there's this historical reason why, not only do you have an evolutionary legacy to not want to hear it, but you've also had a lot of wounds in your past, if you're like any of the other people I've worked with in the, uh, you know, in the world. So, so the, the, it's really hard to, to take the feedback. But once you have your sense of your dignity very strongly um, understood by yourself once you really know that my dignity is in my hands and nobody people can hurt me people can injure it it can be assaulted it can be trampled upon um this i learned from from nelson mandela that uh, it's you know if you think some your dignity is in the hands of other people your first job is to know yourself and to know your own inherent value and worth so it's really, really delicate business, this giving feedback to others, because you have to assume that the person who, who, who you're giving it to really can take it, that it, he or she isn't you know, fragile, so fragile on the inside and not healed enough from the, the wounds that are inevitable in growing up in this world. Let's talk about some of the other temptations. Your first one in your list is not to take the bait and let someone provoke you to bad behavior. That seems like common knowledge, but... In interpersonal and international conflict, whether it's in the schoolyard or between nations, that message uh, gets to be challenged every once in a while, restraint characterized as weakness. How do we overcome that message in those venues and not take the bait? Taking the bait is letting your me be in charge. If we fall prey to this temptation to take the bait, to want to return the uh, offense with another offense, maybe even a bigger offense with a with the purpose of trying to annihilate the source of the threat. I mean, that's, that's the way the old brain thinks. That's the way the me is uh, programmed to try to annihilate the source of the threat that we're experiencing. And if, if, if we let that part of ourselves take over, um, it's likely that, again, it's, as I said in the beginning of the, of the show, then it's, it's really clear that you're going to escalate the violence, you're going to escalate the... You know, the danger, you're going to escalate all the wrong things. But if you get your meat, your eye in place, rather, and you're able to push the pause button and, and reflect on this situation and say, if I'm reacting to what just happened to me in the same way that that person delivered it to me, I'm actually letting him control my behavior. And the eye doesn't like to have anybody else controlling uh, our behavior. Talk a little bit more about this, maybe strongest of the temptations, I think, engaging in gossip. How does that lead us down a path to greater dignity loss all around? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of these things that gossip was, uh, has evolved in us as a way to, um, to identify who are the people in our groups who are the traitors, who are the ones that are going to, you know, be the most self-interested. I mean, there was a good reason why gossip developed, because certainly in our, with our early ancestors, it was part of the sort of underground network. We, we could figure out who to avoid or who to, you know, who to approach. But it's turned into some of the most demeaning uh, behaviors. And I, I'm telling you, I just, just recently I've been in a, in a situation, I'm consulting for a, a big corporation, and one person was, you know, spewed terrible gossip uh, on, uh, by, through email to another person, and the boss actually found out about it. And because he had access to all of the emails and it, the, the humiliation that this person suffered, both people actually, because the, the gossip was so demeaning about the boss, 
but that the person who sent the the emails and who who actually spewed the 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 horrible gossip ended up being just as humiliated. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a ter- it's a, it's such a easy thing to fall into. I mean, you know, you're sitting down with a person and, you know, it's a whole lot easier to talk about somebody else than it is your own intimate uh, world. And, you know, I'm, I'm just wanting us to be mindful of the crippling effects that it has. And, and, and if our gossip is the other, the recipient of the gossip is, is found out, it's the ugliest situation. And just being aware um, you know, it, if you want to talk about somebody, make sure that you talk in a way that if that person were there with you, you'd feel okay discussing him or her. Donna Hicks, uh, one last question to summarize. You've seen all of this at work in your travels, uh, trying to help various groups work out conflict. How would you summarize the anchor that uh, considering our own and others' dignity provides when trying to resolve a conflict? Well, I think it's what we have to fight is something within ourselves, Paul. We have to fight that temptation to, to lash back to, um, you know, all of these things that we've just been describing. And and here's the thing about dignity: we, even though we're all born uh, inherently valuable and worthy, the fact is, we have to learn how to act like it. And so it doesn't what what does come naturally is our inherent worth but what doesn't come naturally is our understanding of how to treat people as if they're worthy and so i think my my message to people would be th- these are some they they there're 10 ways in which you can clearly um get good results when you're in in a conflict with someone and if you can rise above it if you can get your me to calm down and you can get this other part of yourself that has a has the capacity is stronger than the me because you have to really fight that that temptation to to lash out but if you can get that develop that muscle and learn how to actually honor people's dignity here's the key that when you honor someone's dignity you strengthen your own peacetalksradio.com is where you can go to find out more about both of the authors featured on today's program Donna Hicks author of Dignity the essential role it plays in resolving conflict, and earlier Steven Pinker, author of The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, and you'll find links to their work, pictures, partial written transcripts of our conversations, all at peacetalksradio.com. Also at peacetalksradio.com, you can hear this whole program again, or any program in our series going back to 2002. It's also where you can sign up for a free monthly newsletter or subscribe to our podcast, Importantly, it's where you can also make any sized contribution to Good Radio Shows Incorporated, our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your public radio station. So if you think it's a good idea to reserve a slice of the media landscape for talk about peace and conflict resolution, consider a tax-deductible donation. Be sure to let your local station know you appreciate hearing Peace Talks Radio on it. Again, visit us at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you and from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation and KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. Special thanks to Melissa Franklin for help with this episode. For all of us at Peace Talks Radio, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.